Welcome to Ready for Mistakes, a contemporary photography podcast where I talk with photographers and other lens-based artists about their work and philosophy and their views on photography within the world of visual art and beyond. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is. Hello yet again. It is Jeff from Ready for Mistakes podcast. I think it's been over a year since the last interview episode I did um, but this one is something that I believe, I, I don't remember if I mentioned it or not, in the intro of the previous episode from over a year ago, which I believe was with Brendan Burton, um, which was a wonderful conversation. If you have not listened to it yet, uh, definitely go back to it. It's a pretty lengthy episode, worth every minute. It's a great conversation with him. Um, I don't know if I mentioned in the intro of that one or not, or at all, I, but I want to be doing a balanced uh, approach to the to the podcast. I want to do more than just uh, interviews and such. Of course, those are important. Those are fun. Um, it keeps it not about me. But at the same time, I do want to talk about my journey through my own artistic process as a 25-year-old at the moment of recording this. Let me take a quick sip of my coffee. There is a lot that has changed since the last time you guys heard from the podcast, and a lot of it is really surrounding academia, but there's, of course, personal life stuff, but I don't really want to go into that stuff too much. Um, This is not a reality TV show or anything like that, so of course, there's no real reason to go into the personal lives of an artist unless they so choose. In case you uh, were not aware, uh, if you're a listener that does, for uh, whatever reason, doesn't follow me on social media, God forbid, oh my God. Um, Granted, I am trying to tone down my social media use. Regardless, um, I am currently a master's student in photography, an MFA student at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Not to be confused with Dartmouth College, as it is frequently confused with, So far, I am one year out of two years through this program, and one of the topics I want to talk about today is about my experience in grad school, and I want to brush over something that um, I talked with Tristan Martinez about, about uh, going to art school, and I don't want to go too in-depth about that because it's such a beefy topic that there's so much that can be said, Um, but in general, I do want to talk about my personal experience at the schools so far. So, of course, I haven't done any YouTube, I haven't done anything like that aside from posting on Instagram and Twitter, but I've really kind of, I haven't really fully stopped using Twitter, but I'm inches away from wanting to delete my Twitter account, even though it is my account that has the most followers. The influencer would look at me saying that and scoff. It's like, you know, you've got a developing following. It's like all of my Twitter friends have migrated back to Instagram. It's kind of funny. Uh, I'll just quickly go over this, but it's been an interesting thing to see. that where I started to um, make connections and friends in the, in the young photographer and artist community was on Twitter. Twitter is a very easy place to make those con- connections and have those conversations. Um, but of course, as many of us are aware, the NFT craze has taken over Twitter. I've since changed routes on my Twitter usage. I don't really use it for art anymore. I really only use it for memes and sports. Um, as I'm getting slowly but surely more into sports outside of hockey. Currently a a bit bummed that Colorado did not win game five, but it's okay. Um, I'm hoping that they'll get in game six, if not game seven, should they go to game seven. 
Um, but regardless, um, shifting gears on Twitter has helped me quite a lot. Um, and also reducing my usage of Twitter. If, if every single person that you may follow on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram makes a post maybe once a year saying that they're taking a break from social media, that's a sign that there's something seriously wrong with the, the system that is social media. <clears throat> Sorry, it's, it's uh, 10.30 in the morning and I haven't had my coffee yet, so my throat is still being cleansed by the caffeine and hot bean juice that is black coffee. Anyway, so shifting gears over to Instagram, I noticed without any communication necessary, almost all of my friends and connections I made on Twitter had migrated around the same time back to Instagram after many of them had said, Instagram sucks, it's dead, this, that, and the other. It's interesting to see that everyone had just migrated back to Instagram and my friends that I've talked to that have made that migration back to Instagram have all said the same thing. It's, it's honestly more fulfilling there. Uh, it's, it's, it's easier to consume art. There's no shilling of NFTs, even for the people that sell and trade NFTs. Like those people still migrated back to Instagram because that community to them had become something they don't want to be a part of. And I personally am not involved in NFTs at all. I think that Personally, I think that they do need to be improved. They need to be refined. It's still a pretty sloppy system thing. I don't want to talk about it too much. It's it's something that I don't know a whole lot about. Um, and I want it to become more accessible for the general artist. Because I know that a lot of galleries, a lot of, a lot of collectors of physical art have also gotten involved in collecting NFTs. And has helped some of my friends not only get out of hard times, but also develop a real young artist career with gallery representation with with agents with art dealers and all that for physical and nfts which is really cool um that's something that it's a lot harder to do when you're working strictly in print when you're working strictly in actual physical artwork all right i'll just kind of give you guys a rundown so of course i have been in grad school I am an MFA student at UMass Dartmouth, like I mentioned earlier. Um, it's a very small school, roughly 8,000, close to 9,000 people attend the school. I have been living in New Bedford, Massachusetts since last August. Um, I moved ship from central Illinois uh, all the way over to the south coast of Massachusetts, not too far from Providence, Rhode Island. And um, it's honestly, it's so much more interesting out here for one. I mean, the the actual layout of the place of the of the regions being very uh, very much. I mean, they call it New England for a reason. I mean, uh, the roads are not in a very strict grid system with some diagonals, right? It's a it's a very organic system, often following rivers or landforms or stuff like that, or old horse paths and things like that. Um, and in downtown New Bedford and downtown Fall River and downtown Providence, they attempt to use some semblance of a grid system, which is interesting to see how they try to use it. But then you go to Boston and all bets are off. I've been to Boston a couple times. I've been to the ICA with my friend Bree. I've been to a couple small exhibitions, one that I went to with my girlfriend and was a wonderful time uh, seeing Hannah Altman's uh, small exhibition at, um, uh, at Gallery 263. And that is a really wonderful body of work that she's put together. Um, I know she's from the region um, and she's been doing some incredible work. If you have not looked at Hannah Altman's work, 
definitely go check out her Instagram, her website, all of it. Fabulous photographer. So that's kind of what I've been up to outside of school. Um, I'm doing what I can to uh, explore the area and go to art exhibitions and all that. I've been to a few concerts and it's been really great setting up my life here. Um, and it's somewhere that I can see myself living for a while because it's like in the Midwest, it's so much uh, slowed down. I went to Illinois a few weeks ago and it was funny to me how I saw all the cars on the road in my town and like the regular roads uh, were so much slower. Like if the light turns green, I'm already gone. I am a quarter mile ahead of everybody else that was at the same exact position to me. So it's funny to see that. And on the interstate, it's about the same. But bringing it back to photography, that's what this podcast is about. Being a grad student here has been a really interesting and eye-opening experience in every way you can imagine. So the photography program at my school, UMass Dartmouth, uh, has fluctuated throughout the years from what I understand. It's gone from having a pretty good handful of MFA students to none at all for a couple years. I was the first um, admitted uh, photo MFA uh, among two. It was myself and uh, my former MFA classmate who uh, were the first two photo MFAs to be admitted in I think two or three years. I forget what the exact number is. Spencer, forgive me. When I first started my program, I really wanted to shift gears in my artwork. Um, anyone that has looked at my art in the past has um, seen that I generally work in color. I really work in, um, I've worked a lot in nightscapes. I've worked a lot in uh, kind of like American contemporary landscape work, like in my Route 66 stuff. Um, my Dune Edge Face West project is a winter and color film project. Color has just been dominant in my practice for so long. So I wanted to initially just completely change things up full stop and shoot black and white, but not just black and white as it is, but I wanted to do black and white in digital while shooting film doubles. I actually wanted to prioritize it the other way around. By having a new digital camera um, and working with uh, a darkroom again and all of that, um, exploring the seaside, exploring the, the woodland areas around me, kind of going back to my roots of traditional landscape, it got the, it got the ball rolling to figure out what I really want to be interested in working on for my thesis project. So ultimately, black and white is present in my current thesis work, but not even close to the way that it was initially included. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I first came in. There was something that became apparent to me as I was studying other photographers, as I was studying research practice, as I, as I was listening to other photo podcasts and hearing artists that I'm interested in that have done work about groups of people, about regions of the country, and hearing about how that how they came to certain decisions. Um, artists like Gregory Halpern, Alex Oath, but those are the first two guys that come to mind and thinking about how they went about it. And a lot of times they went into their projects with a conceptual approach. Uh, it's just their photographs look documentary in style. So I still don't really have a very big interest in documentary photography, like true documentary photography. I don't have an interest in journalism photography. While I've done that kind of work and I have that experience, it still influences my practice to this day. Like I'm more interested, interested in the visual style, not the actual method. 
So when thinking about the idea of, say, making a project about Swamp Yankees, I did not find that I was genuinely interested in it, but also the other really important thing that I think go, uh, is something that a lot of um, photographers of my demographic, white cisgender men photographers, need to remember is that there are certain stories that are not yours to tell. You may be interested in them from a visual standpoint, and there's some interesting conversations that can be had about why that is. But ultimately, there are certain conversations that are just not yours to have as the informed person, right? That is also one of the reasons why I seldom do portraits. But regardless, finding out what I'm interested in working on was a very slow process. My entire first semester of being at school here was really trying to figure out what, not only what I'm interested in, but also uh, how I wanted to make that artwork. Being in the program that I'm in, it's not like a typical like siloed off kind of program. While it still technically has those restrictions, uh, it's really a very tight-knit group of, uh, of master's students in various media. All the ceramics, all the painting, all the illustration drawing people, all the photographers um, in the fine art side of things are interacting with each other on a regular basis. Um, photography does kind of straddle the design and fine art side of things, but I have not met any of the interior design or graphic design people at all in my entire time working here. Working. Making art, I guess, could be counted as working. My entire time studying here, I have not met any of the graphic designer, interior design people that my program technically has another foot in. But my incoming classmates for the MFA photo program might be interacting with them a little bit more frequently just based on their portfolios that I've seen. They're much more in the editorial um, professional side of things. So maybe they will be more inclined to interact with the design folks than I am with the fine art people. And that's perfectly okay. There's a reason why photography straddles those two areas because it can be in both of those areas. But by being around all these other media, and people who make these other media and are experimenting with different um, materials and methods has been really important for me as a photographer who used to just say that, you know, photography, like straight photography, prints on the wall is the only thing I want to do. It's like, well, some of that still remains true. I found that I was really interested in playing around with how the pictures are presented on the wall still using straight imagery that I'm used to doing. Um, but I started working with video. I started working with uh, Polaroids a lot. In fact, Polaroids have become a very prominent part of my thesis work. Um, so I have a few pieces that I've been working on for my thesis. And Polaroids are one of them, or Polaroids are involved in one of them. Video, actually it's a two-sided video, is another project. And then I have a straightforward conventional um, one picture after the other carefully sequenced project, as I would have done in the past as well, um, among other ideas that I've been playing around with this summer. Um, so that's kind of like figuring out what I mentioned. I have not said what I've been working on. I've just kind of been beating around the bush. I am interested in the ideas of in-between and placelessness. Um, this kind of perpetual feeling of not really being in the right place uh, and that can mean a lot of different things. 
Um, so all the projects I've been working on for my thesis have all been approaching those ideas of placelessness or the state of being in between or feeling in between in different manners. Um, some are much more personal. The Polaroid project is one that is a very personal project that I'm trying to translate to being understood by a general audience, audience, um, which the Polaroid project has a whole boatload of Polaroids sprawling around, um, black and white, uh, analog prints, um, off of 120 film. And those big prints are, uh, working with the Polaroids kind of as anchors, uh, of location and, and all that. So I'm still working away on that one. That's a pretty young project. And then I have the other project, the video that I mentioned, which is really kind of about the journey and destination. There's a kind of sense of in-between and placelessness there. It's a bunch of footage uh, shot through a car window um, on one side, and the other side is straightforward picture or video pictures. It's kind of like a photo series, but the pictures are moving, um, that are of a destination. They're of a place. They're of a somewhere that I'm standing, whether I'm holding the camera in my hand or it's on a tripod. And that kind of journey versus destination is going on while there's um, a handwritten animated conversation between the viewer and the two video pieces. That's also fairly young in its current state. I've been working on it since November, but it's uh, still in its kind of growing pains with especially the writing. Um, and then finally, that one I mentioned with the carefully sequenced uh, straight imagery. That one is very much in its sequencing stage. I've been trying to track down a couple other pictures I shot last year that can be brought into the mix and print those off, put them on the on my very large floor of my studio, um, which will not be as large pretty soon once my classmates move into the studio. Figuring out a good sequence of flow of not only the formal qualities of each image, but also the content of each image and kind of moving throughout this sequence of moving between specificity and feeling like I'm anywhere and nowhere at all. And it kind of moves between that in a, in a fluctuation. It's not like a particular formulaic frequency. It's very, it's, it's very kind of calm as it feels. So another thing with the sequence that I want to do is I want it to function both directions. I want you to be able to start at the beginning of the book and work to the back in a conventional front cover, back cover. But I could, I want the viewer to also be able to flip the book over and go backward. And I have ideas as to how the book would be presented. It would have the exact same style of cover, not the same imagery, but the same style of cover on both the front and the back. Um, the spine would probably even have uh, the lettering go both directions. And then, of course, uh, figuring out like a lot of the design with the statement and um, copyright and all that, you know, things like that that are that kind of have to be in the book. And then finally, I've been thinking about other ways I can introduce this idea of being in between as well as placelessness, not necessarily in the same uh, in the same projects, but I have ideas I've been playing around with. Uh, I've been printing off a bunch of pictures I shot recently in addition to pictures I shot last year. I'm trying to cut myself off with looking at old pictures only from 2021 to now. Uh, because I really want it to be within the years that I have been in school, even if I shot the pictures in April of 2021, even though I started school in September. So I've been printing these off, and oddly enough, my printer, my Epson printer at home, has been struggling. I don't know what is going on. 
but it is spitting out photos that are way too cool toned. Don't know what it is. If there's any printer nerds that happen to be listening to this, I need help. There are no lines. There's nothing clogged. I've done the test prints. I've done everything I need to do. Everything specifically looks correct. I've even tried doing warming filters on the photos that are coming out very blue. And oddly enough, it looks exactly the same as the one without the warming filter. So there's something goofy going on. So I've been working on that because I want to try introducing more staged imagery, but not staged in like a Crudson kind of style, not even like a Jeff Wall kind of style. But I do want to do more controlled stuff. Um, I have uh, one picture I shot recently with my girlfriend as the subject in the picture. And that one, I'm really happy with how that one came out. That is one of the prints that actually looks correct. But playing around with um, things that I've been interested in in the past, um, for those of you that have looked at my project Moth, know that uh, I've done controlled staged work, but it was with a smaller, lower-end camera. I can't print those pictures very big, but one of these days I will finally print off an edition of framed pieces and uh, a bunch of artist proofs, things that I will be able to sell for hopefully good amounts of money. And that way I can have these 16 by 20 framed exhibition prints that I can take to a gallery and say, hey, I want to show this work. Um, Here are the prints. Here's the work. Here's how much I want to sell them for and all that. And that's something I've been slowly but surely trying to do more. A lot of it is virtual. I've been either sending out emails or submitting to calls for artists. And uh, those are the kinds of things I need to be doing in order to get my art out there. So that's something else I've been doing a lot recently is trying to figure out how I can get my art out there in kind of the conventional, uh, traditional way, but with the modern technology to help me out. So obviously back in the day, I would have to, you know, go to New York, go to Boston, go to LA or Chicago with a box of prints and go to galleries and say, I want to show this worker. I want you to represent me. And you pretty much are showing up in person with that box of prints, trying to pitch your artwork to them. Show that you are, even though you're a developing, every artist is a developing artist, but especially the young ones are like, we, we need to make money, you know, Massachusetts is not a cheap state to live in. I need to make money. So I need to get my art out there a bit more. But it is so challenging as especially a young 25-year-old artist in school to be accepted into these things. Once you graduate, your chances go up quite a bit. But it's still very hard to actually get your art out there. And of course, the classic saying that I don't even know where it originates or if I'm butchering it at all, but you're only going to sell your artwork if you sell it. Like you actually need to, even if you're not making sales, if you are offering the ability to buy prints, if you are actively trying to find places to sell your artwork, if it's a coffee shop, if it's a gallery in town, if it's somewhere in New York City, you're not going to make sales. If you're complaining about not making sales and you're not offering the ability to sell your artwork, well, no shit, no one's going to buy your artwork. No one thinks you're willing to sell it. And that's something that I've learned. <laughs> I just looked down at my notes and I realized that um, the next thing after I talked about my projects was supposed to be what I've learned from doing these projects. Um, I got on a tangent about selling artwork. Those that know me know that it's very easy for me to go on tangents. But I tried to bring it back to the original concept. So 
this is a very hard shift back to what the original topic was. <laughs> anyway, um, so what I've learned throughout the first year of being a master's student has been really about my process. Um, I know the kinds of images I like to make and my interest in changing things up. I have some ideas that I've been sitting on that I want to go to the seaside and take these pictures um, and different, you know, experimenting and such. Something that I haven't done as much since graduating undergrad was experimenting. You know, I graduated undergrad and I just kind of kept doing the same thing. And that's okay because ultimately it helped build up a portfolio. It helped me develop work that inevitably helped me get accepted into grad school. Um, and that's something I recommend everybody do is to take some years off from undergrad. If you, if you went to undergrad for photography or art, you don't have to to get into an MFA program. But if you went to undergrad at all, regardless of your major, and you find you want to get an MFA in whatever your art form is, take a couple years off. Spend two to five years between undergrad and, and master's and applying to master's programs to really figure out your art as it stands in that moment, knowing full well that it will change once you get into a grad program. If you don't get accepted right away, keep going at it. If you know that's something you want to do, just keep working on it. I knew going in that I wanted to be in an academic setting, that I wanted to be surrounded by other artists in this kind of controlled space that has the open-endedness for me to work on what I want to work on. And it's been incredibly helpful. You know, it's one of those things that once I got through this first year, through all the stress of classes and figuring out how to interpret critiques and all that, I found that even though there were those hard moments, that this is still where I want to be in this moment, that this is still something good for me. Because there are people that find that grad school is not for them. There are people that will change schools. There are people that will just drop out and still make their art, but go into a completely different profession. And all of that is perfectly okay. And that is honestly what matters most. You need to take care of yourself first before you are worried about other people's opinions on your life choices. Continuing on with what I've learned, I mean, something that is really interesting that uh, I really didn't expect. Uh, well, I don't think I didn't expect it. I think it was just something that became more apparent to me uh, is the importance of research in your art projects. Of course, as an undergraduate student, I found from um, observing undergrads uh, work around the country, as well as in my own undergrad, um, that it's not as apparent when a student has done a lot of research. A lot of times an undergraduate art student is making work that is very personal to them and are often critiqued by their teachers and classmates in a way that will help translate whatever that project is, whatever that concept is, um, in a way that can be understood by a general audience. Um, and that's important for every artist to make sure that people understand it. It can be a deeply rooted personal project, but if people will look at it and not get it, that's not a bad thing per se. But if you want other people to understand, if that is your goal for other people to understand what your concept is that is very deeply personal and it's not coming across, clearly there's something you need to work on. But if you don't care if people understand it, if you don't care about the general opinion from a general audience, then that's okay. Then obviously you don't need to worry about it. Don't stress yourself over translating it. 
to a general digestion. That was something that I found that through doing research on um, the things I'm interested in um, and looking at other art, artists of different media outside of photography, it's helped me really translate a lot of the manners of my ideas into ways that uh, people can understand what I'm trying to go for, both from titling a project to the way it's presented on a wall to even little things of like choices of what I'm taking pictures of. Um, and the Polaroid one is an interesting way because an interesting thing to look at because it's so young, it's so early in its development that um, it still has so much room to grow. But the idea is clear. It is obvious that I want these large black and white pictures to be surrounded, almost overwhelmingly surrounded by black and white SX70 Polaroids. Um, and that kind of presentation, I kind of, I didn't start with the presentation. I started with the Polaroids and I just kind of put them on the wall. And then I figured out, oh, damn, I can use these black and white vertical pictures I've been thinking about for a long time, not knowing what to do with. And I printed them off and I was like, all right, let's put them up there with the Polaroids. And it's like, okay, cool. Figuring out, okay, well, I want the Polaroids and the large black and white prints to kind of be on the same playing field. I want them both to f uh, own their objectness. So I mounted the large prints on foam core for now, and I made little shelves to lean those big ass prints against the wall while elevated in line with the viewing uh, viewing position. So it put all of the Polaroids and the, uh, the big prints on this really interesting uh, kind of sprawl of objectness and photoness um, with the Polaroids having that kind of soft sepia tone and of course the texture of the of the frame and then the film grain from the big prints and all that and one of my professors suggested including the film borders how how dare I include film borders after being a, uh, an opponent to film borders and prints and it's like well maybe I should try it out I should give it a shot see what it looks like and if it looks good if it works my professor was on to something. If it doesn't work, if it kind of takes away, if it's distracting, then maybe my initial intuition was correct. So that's something that I found that is so important in the research and the process of making it is, of course, experimenting is a type of research. Um, you're taking ideas from other people that have done things in the past, even if you know it or not, um, and reapplying it. You got to still read up on concepts that you're interested in, even if you're not doing a intellectual, bigger picture kind of project, you know, if I wanted to do a project about the history of the South Coast of Massachusetts, I would be doing a lot of conventional historical research on the area. I would be interviewing people. I would be going around. I would be doing that kind of research, but I'm not. I'm not interested in that. It's cool. I'm interested in it from a personal standpoint, but not from an artistic standpoint. I had to do research on things like the uncanny. I had to do research on things like road trip photography. I had to do all kinds of different types of research that had nothing to do with like historical or scientific or intellectual research. I was really interested in artistic concepts and how I can apply artistic concepts from those French philosophers from the 1960s or whatever to now and the more recent uh, artistic theories and philosophies that are about the things I'm interested in. And you know, Rebecca Solnit, for example, is a wonderful author 
that has been integral to a lot of my uh, my practice and understanding of my uh, my subject that I've so chosen. She mentions photography on occasion, but in general, her work is not about photography in any in any way. So reading non non art things, but maybe are related to it, is really interesting in how it can translate to a personal project, to a conceptual project. And that's something that I think every single art student needs to know is like, oh, if you're making a personal project, you still have to research it. So that became apparent to me throughout my process. And I really need to maintain that. And after graduating, I need to maintain that kind of research. If I ever do an intellectual project, I need to do a different kind of research to what I'm used to. So a lot of it comes down to that. And something, of course, with all of that, you know, showing that research, showing that you've been doing that work outside of actually making images and prints um, is really important, especially in the critique side of things. When you're, you know, doing a mini defense of your work, uh, you need to really take everything that your peers and professors will say um, in response to your presentation, understanding full well that it's, completely subjective, but if there are certain things that are pretty consistent about your work, that maybe they're all seeing the same thing that you have not been able to see yet. A lot of times it's hard. You know, I've had visiting artists come through um, that did lectures and showed work and then did visit visits with the master's students, and I've gotten a whole range of really strong, positive responses to certain things. And I've also gotten really hard critiques of like, this doesn't work in the way I see what you're trying to do, but you need to spend a little more time doing X, Y, or Z. And sometimes it's been really hard. And it's been a whole range of younger artists in their early 30s to artists in their 70s coming through uh, and looking at my work and my peers' work, understanding that they all come from very different backgrounds. They all come from very different situations, life situations that are going to inform their artistic vision differently to you. But if there are certain things that line up that maybe, just maybe, they're onto something. There were a couple artists that, um, there, there was one artist that came through that um, some of his critiques I did not agree with. I just full-heartedly was like, I don't agree at all. And that's okay. I see where he was coming from, from his background and what he's interested in, but it's like the, the things that he was suggesting to me is like, I'm not interested in that. So what that told me was that I need to maintain what I'm interested in, but perhaps approach it in a different way. Um, and when he was like pointing out like, oh, I like this picture, I like this picture, um, the Polaroids are really interesting, do this, do this, that, or the other with it. Um, he was not really interested in my video project much at all, which is okay because I've had my other peers and professors are all for the video project as it currently stands. And it's so interesting to get that range in opinions because by having so many of these people in this controlled environment um, where subjectivity is king, it's really important to know that though, even if I disagree with a critique uh, with a particular point, that it doesn't mean that they're wrong or I'm wrong. It just means that I need to work a little bit more on refining this particular thing to get closer to what I am currently interested in. But there are, of course, other, uh, the most common kind of critique that I've noticed is that, like, 
um, you know, my peers will see something that I didn't see before and make suggestions that I would have never thought of. And that is probably the most fun kind of critique because it gives me something to work off of more so than just looking at my pictures on the wall or on the floor. Like, I don't know. I'm at a, I'm at a, at a brick wall at this point. Like, I don't know where to go from here. Bring in your friends, bring in your professor, bring in anyone, your non-artist friends especially can really help out. I've even talked with my girlfriend who's a writer about uh, figuring out ideas and all that. And she's given me some pretty cool interests, uh, interesting um, points to work off of um, as she's a general viewer. She's a writer, not a visual artist. So, of course, there's some differences in approach there uh, to both of our chosen media. So it's those kind of things that are really fun to work with. And that is by far the most interesting thing about grad school. I've talked a lot about my general thoughts on my program, about the work I've been making and the major things that I've learned. But overall, I do want to make it clear that grad school is not for everybody. It's not something that you have to do to do well in the art world. Over the past 10 to 20 years, there has been a MFA boom of sorts. I forget where I read that, so I would cite that source of the phrasing MFA boom. It's been a while since I read wherever I read that. There have been so many students getting into MFA programs, and a lot of them do well, and a lot of them coming out with really fantastic work. And something that I've noticed among the photography crowd is... There, is, there seems to be a lot of pushback against the traditional manners of image making. And when I say traditional, I don't mean like the F64 group or the, you know, the traditional landscapes, Ansel Adams kind of stuff. No, I don't mean that kind of traditional. I mean like the 1970s traditional of breaking down boundaries and completely befuddling everyone that looks at your artwork thinking like being like breaking breaking rules in every manner i've noticed among my peers of 20 something photographers and 30 something photographers and the slightly you know current generation established artists in their 40s and 50s noticing that they are not interested in that 1970s manner of breaking down those boundaries of what photography is in fact, I've noticed more so that artists are really interested in exploiting what photography is, like really owning the image as an image, the owning what the photograph is and utilizing that as a tool to expand on an idea rather than expanding on the object. You know, you look back at American Services by Stephen Shore, and that was kind of groundbreaking for the time, even though the response in the moment was awful. You know, it's one of those projects that he broke down barriers about photography by doing pharmacy prints, three, uh, three and a quarter or three and a half by, f uh, by five prints on a gallery wall of everyday things and sometimes of kind of unsettling pictures like a, of a clogged toilet, for example, is one that always comes to mind. But pictures of his food and stuff like that, like he made those pictures Oh, kind of leading up into Uncommon Places, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly. But, you know, Uncommon Places was even kind of like a groundbreaking kind of thing. But it became so expected in the photography scene, especially with Uncommon Places being just kind of straight photography with a large format camera. 
that photographers today, young photographers in their 20s and 30s, are not generally interested in breaking down expectations in the same way they were in the 70s and 80s. So it's interesting to see how photographers are trying to exploit that uh, manner of image making that, you know, I found that I'm honestly more interested in using my digital camera and my Polaroid camera more than anything. I haven't really used my Mamiya. I haven't really used my large format in the past year. I've used it on occasion, but for the most part, I've really just been sticking with my digital camera and my Polaroid camera. And with the Polaroid stuff, these are there are certain things, and I really wanted to like go on that tangent for a minute, just because there are certain kinds of responses that you'll get uh, about the expectations versus reality and how your contemporaries are, what you are interested in, and how that differs from uh, artists that have been around working for decades longer. And of course, they're, they, they obviously know a lot more. They, they've been in the game for so long that they really do know a lot more about art making and critique and the, the industry of sorts, how to get your art out there. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of, well, what is contemporary? What is currently going on in artists' lives and minds trying to figure out how to work with their media in ways that push the medium, but without, you know, so postmodernist, I guess. You know, we're contemporary. We're in a different era of of art than the 1970s and 80s. So why should we follow suit with those types of practices? Um, so like when going into a grad program, you're probably going to get a lot of people that will want to stick with that 1970s and 80s method of working. But then you'll get other teachers that are much more like, yeah, like you should be working in ex- like you should be experimenting in certain ways that are emphasizing the contemporaneous qualities of your artwork. Um, you know, I'm a straight photographer, but I'm utilizing straight photography in a way that I haven't done before in ways that I personally haven't even seen before. Um, but also I'm still young. I'm still finding new artists every day and there's still so much I haven't seen. And there's a certain amount of imitation that goes on, of course, but ultimately, you know, my work doesn't look like Alex Oath's work. My work doesn't look like Gregory Halpern's work. Their work informs my stuff and I love their artwork, but I'm not trying to make their images. I'm not making their images. So there's like certain things about that, about being contemporary that, you know, being careful about imitation versus influence. Going to get a master's degree in photography is challenging, but it's rewarding if that is a type of work that you want to do. And that if you find in the middle of your program that it's not for you, there's nothing wrong with changing it up. There's a lot of, it's a, it's kind of like a pressure cooker, especially if you're on a two-year track, um, like I am. I'm on a two-year versus three-year track. Um, it really is kind of an intense situation, but ultimately, you have the resources and the time to make your artwork. You know, I, I have my own studio space, as every MFA student does at my school, and utilizing that studio space and installation rooms and all that to put my work on walls and have critiques and all that, um, having access to professors that have connections, but also their own um, immediate stuff going on. Like one of my professors suggested a place um, down the road to get my stuff framed at a pretty damn good price. A same place that Hannah Altman got her stuff framed for uh, her show in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And it's like how those things line up. It's like, oh, there are two artists that can vouch for this one place that's a 25-minute drive away from me that I can go to and know full well that they will do a good job. And it's like those are the kind of things that you can get out of a master's program, but they are not the, you know, a master's program is not the only way to get those kind of connections, both in the in the formal place of getting your art on the wall, but also with critiques and visiting artists and all that. You can do all of that on your own, in your own manner, but ultimately, as I believe, I'm going to butcher the phrasing a little bit, but like what Tristan Martinez said in the second most recent episode of this podcast, he said, you're kind of paying for the club. You're kind of paying to play in a sense by going to get an art degree. And ultimately, that is really what it is. You're paying ass loads of money, depending on your situation, to get quicker access, easier access to professors, to artists, to visiting people, to uh, get better critique and all that. But ultimately, you don't have to have that. And if you find that, if you struggled with academia in, in a fine art side of things, like if you really did not function well with that, you know, systematic critique system and certain expectations and deadlines, that, you know, that's okay. You can still reach out to professors. You can still reach out to uh, to artists online and you'll get a lot of no responses. You'll get a lot of rejections. You know, I shot high and shot a, shot a message to Alex Oath asking if he wanted to take a look at my work, knowing full well that he would definitely say no. Sure enough, he said no. But Alex Oath is a freaking Midwestern dad kind of character. <laughs> so he's, he responded in the most like kind way, definitely copy and paste kind of situation of anyone that would, uh, would ask for, you know, input on artwork. It's so, like, I get a lot of responses. I appreciate it, but I can't do it. Very straightforward, very polite and sh- to the point. And it's like, I expect that because that's just how it goes. But knowing if you do go to a master's program, know that you're going to have to balance everything. You might have teachers that are, very understanding that you have to have time to yourself, time to socialize, time to really like sit down and process things. But also you might have teachers that are like, you should be working so much in the studio. You should dedicate every ounce of energy to your artwork because that's how it should be. You're going to get the polar opposites across the board. So you are going to be put into a really interesting situation where you don't really know what you're going to get. You may study with an artist that you admire. You may find that one of your professors becomes an artist that you admire. That's been the case for me. All the teachers that I work with are freaking fantastic. <laughs> like every single teacher that I that I'm stu- like if any of you guys are listening, I genuinely love all of your artwork. <laughs> so it's it's really cool like if you previously before going into a master's program don't know any of the teachers like you may take a look at their website and say oh yeah they're interesting i like their stuff then you meet them then you start studying with them and you realize holy cow these people are awesome but you might have the opposite response you may find oh i'm gonna go to x college and study with y professor because i know why professors work and then i go there and I find, oh my God, like their work is fantastic, but I hate studying with them. You know, there that can happen. There's a whole range of responses. So getting your master's degree is really something that you cannot say is or is not 100% good or bad. You might fe- 
find a lot on Twitter especially, but you might find a lot online saying, don't get an art degree, don't get an MFA because it's not worth it. It's a waste of money. But then you're going to get people like me, among others, that say, no, this is the best decision I've ever made. It was not easy. And at times it did feel like a waste of money. At times it did feel like I'm on the right track. But ultimately, that's how it's supposed to be as an artist, regardless of getting an MFA or not. You should be going through the motions. You should be going through these kind of fluctuating responses to your own art practice because ultimately, if you have it all figured out, you, you know, you would be making it. You would be, you would not have the kind of artwork process that you do now if you had it all figured out. If you felt like, yep, I've got it. I'm on this. Everything is working correctly. That's not realistic. Everything is very much a push-pull of downtimes in your artwork to really strong, productive times. This summer is a great example for me. I've been going every other week. I've had really great productive weeks trying to get things done um, to weeks where I just lounge around and play Gran Turismo and maybe go to the driving range and, you know, I don't really do much. And that's kind of how it should go in the summer, at least, you know, in the in actual school year. I'm not expected to be, you know, every other week I'm making work. You know, it's like every few days I should be doing something new, um, whether it be in print or in the field. So there are those expectations. There is that pressure cooker feeling at times. But and one last thing to leave you guys with before I finally wrap it up. I highly, highly, highly recommend looking at state schools looking at state schools and not necessarily huge state schools, but still look at those two. The reason being is that they are not Yale. They are not CalArts. They are not MICA. You have, actually, I don't know if MICA is private or state funded. Regardless, um, the private schools like Yale, like Harvard, like CalArts are really, really competitive in who they let in and if you get in i yeah if you get in and you can afford it or you get a scholarship or whatever go there because it's awesome it's a great kind of program but you would need to figure out like if that program is right for you talk like if obviously if you live in virginia and you get into cal arts like it's challenging to get from virginia to california uh so of course Visiting in person might not be as easy. So, you know, what I did when I was feeling out school that I wanted to go to, I reached out to uh, the advisor, the grad advisor, and said, like, hey, are there, any under, are there any grad students that I can talk to to kind of get a feel for things? So I talked to Kelly DeVitt, and I was going to talk to Yuri Hayashi, but uh, Yuri was doing her own thing. But I talked to Kelly DeVitt, and she showed me around and what the actual immediate student experience was like. And I'm like, yeah, this feels good. I like that she can walk down the hallway and see friends and colleagues just working away, doing their thing and listening to music or, you know, like it's a social but professional environment. And that's really what I wanted, a tight knit, small population program where I can walk down the hall, see what my friends are working on in a large school, in a large program with a lot of students, especially if it's siloed off. It's, it's, it's harder to interact with other media. Like if you're a photo MFA among six other photo MFAs, all working on different things, that's cool. That's awesome. 
but you're probably going to be stuck interacting with those six other photographers and then your professors. I don't know for sure because it is a case-by-case basis, but I highly recommend state schools, especially smaller state schools, because those professors will always have great insight. They always have really great experience in the art scene, even if they're not like a currently massively famous artist. They still know it. And not only that, but they might have connections to people and places that you would have not expected. It's one of those things like don't judge, hit the classic, don't judge a book by its cover. Just because it's a small school doesn't mean it's a bad school. doesn't mean it's bad for art programs. Like my undergrad is not known for its fine art program, but the past decade or so, my, my undergrad has become much more prominent in the Midwestern art school scene because it's been not only putting out artists that are really fantastic, both from undergrad and graduate school, but also the exhibitions that they've been having, the conversations that they've been having, the connections that the teachers have, have been really been made more prominent in their space. So don't write off small state schools. Don't write off state schools in general. If you want to shoot high for the uh, private schools, do it. But honestly, there are certain kinds of competition that come with it. Really do your research. Really feel out what it's like. Reach out to recent graduates or current MFA students to figure out what it's actually like. Get a boots on the ground kind of perspective because your lofty idea of what Harvard might be like is not necessarily the correct perspective. So do your research, have fun, do your thing. I'm going to finally close this off. I'm at um, recording at like 68 minutes, but I got to cut it down, of course. So anyway, I'm hoping to get some more in here. I need to reach out to some people to get some interviews started up, but I'm going to be doing probably some more solo episodes, but this one was really just a big ass recap. And I want to do more uh, more episodes that are talking about the process of what I've been working on. So thank you guys for listening. If you watch the podcast on YouTube, which is interesting. Um, if you watch it on YouTube versus listen on Spotify, Apple Music, definitely leave, leave like, comment, all that jazz. Leave a review if you want. Um, because, of course, those kind of things help out quite a lot with actually getting people to listen and view the work. Um, if you have suggestions of maybe talk to this artist or whatever, suggestions to just improve things altogether, you know, what did I just talk about? I talked about critique for a while. I can take it. It's all good. Give me what you, what you got. So thank you guys for listening and I will see you or hear you or talk to you in the next one. <laughs>